everybody and welcome to the Industrial Sourcing Podcast. My name is Anne-Sophie. I'm the CEO of Ravacan. We build an online solution that gives industrial buyers a delightful alternative to their master spreadsheet. And it allows them to put processes like quality price updates on autopilot. Learn more at ravacan.com. I'm particularly excited about today's interview because I have wanted to get a global commodity manager of metallic raw materials on the podcast since the beginning. You'll see, it's different. I'll bet you'll learn something new today. I reached out to Lisa Resman, the CEO of Metal Miner. She suggested I interview Don Hauser. He's currently VP Business Solutions at Metal Miner. And before that, he had been negotiating global steel contracts at John Deere for over 10 years. Hi, Don. How are you? Great. I'm excited to be here with you. Yeah, excited to have you on the show and to learn more about your background and uh, the flat steel commodity. Thank you. So um, I'm interested in learning how you ended up in procurement. What's your story? Oh, it's kind of an interesting story how I ended up in procurement. My background is actually in manufacturing engineering, and I worked several different roles there. I uh, worked with like a Toyota and Ingersoll Rand and some other uh, large construction companies in a manufacturing uh, type role, and it just wasn't really a good fit. Uh, a lot of people told me I talked too much and I was too social to be an engineer. So <laughs> I had some suggestions to look at procurement. So I kind of explored those avenues and uh, ended up in procurement. Once I got there, it was it was a good fit. Been there for a better part of a decade. So you started your uh, career in procurement at John Deere? Yep, that's that's right. So I worked uh, in the the seeding division. They made the equipment that puts the seed actually in the ground. So if you think of corn and soybeans, the equipment that, that plants that. I uh, worked in cost with those, so trying to figure out what the new product was going to cost. The engineers would draw it up on their sketch pads and napkins, and I had to figure out what it was going to cost in production. Uh, and I did that for a couple of years, and then I moved to the enterprise uh, procurement where I sourced flat steel globally, really, uh, U.S., Mexico, Europe, a little bit in China, all everywhere that, that John Deere bought flat steel. Uh, I had some sort of involvement in sourcing it. All right. Very cool. So how many locations were you responsible for? Oh, don't really know location-wise. Probably 50-ish, somewhere in, in that neighborhood because they're spread out all yeah. over the place. You know, uh, large North American footprint, obviously, but uh, went everywhere and across all the different product lines too. Everything from your your little riding lawnmower that you would you know, mow your personal yard everywhere to the construction equipment that would be in mines, the large uh, dump trucks, excavators, the whole product line and everything in between. Uh, a lot of people think of John Deere as farm equipment, the big green stuff. Um, yeah. That's what you what you think of but uh, also has a large construction division and sourced all that metal too and so how complex is it is it like how many different grades of steel would you yeah. source so surprisingly as much as it is it wasn't super complicated because a lot of the designs that were in that used um, similar 
types of steel. So, you know, there's probably, I don't know, 30 different types of steel. Oh, or wow. Not a huge amount, nothing super exotic like uh, automotives. You know, they use a lot of really exotic type stuff. Yeah. The, the agriculture and construction industry in general has different applications. There's looking for something that's really strong, but there's not a lot of, uh, you know, impact resistance or stuff like that with some of the automotives. And that's what really drives a lot of complexity in your products. Do you think that uh, purchasing adds uh, an influence in that strategy to standardize uh, the type of steels or is just... um, the reality of the business. No, it it, it definitely does. Um, there's a certain amount of integration between design engineers and procurement that will help drive some of those sourcing decisions. I think you get that with with most um, large manufacturers that are strategic with their their metal. Uh, you get the design engineers that want to use something that they saw on the internet that was cool that will work, and then you, you got to get a procurement guy to say, "Whoa, I'll never be able to buy that." <laughs> that that's part of the part of the deal of of trying to link the procurement and the engineering together and that's what what really makes a effective buying organization i i think once you get something that's kind of in the design process you're stuck with it you have to go figure out how to buy it so if you can uh kind of help drive some of those it makes your job in procurement a lot a lot easier yeah and uh do you think that your background as an engineer helped you with your work? I, I definitely do. Um, you know, you're talking to engineers and I could I could kind of talk the language in some degree and in reading prints and material call outs and stuff like that. It's kind of funny. Sometimes you would see uh, the engineers try to trip you up because they don't, sometimes they don't really want to talk to you. They're like, oh, it's on the print. Here, look at it. And then when you can look at it and say, oh, it's this and this and this, they're like, oh, maybe I will talk. You know, so it, it it helps uh, build rapport and and open some some doors. Um, and once they are kind of on the same page, then it gives you a little more credibility to help drive material selections that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise listened to. It's it's very interesting. I have so many questions about it. Um, what about like the steel commodity as a whole? Like, what kind of sub commodities do you see? Um, in that big category? So in the, the overall category there's of, of steel, there's usually flat products and long products. And I only sourced flat products. So you're talking sheet and plate, uh, anywhere between very thin, you know, like a, a one millimeter all the way up to, I think this, the thickest product that I sourced was 10 or 12 inches thick on some of the heavy construction equipment. It was crazy how thick some of that mm-hmm. stuff was. Uh, and then there's long products, which are more bars and tubes that'll come in you know, 20, 40, 60 foot lengths. It seems like it would be very similar and the making of a lot of that products is similar, but it's a totally different market. It's size different, it's source different, it's price different. Uh, and I was all on the flat side. So sheets and sheets. Okay. And, and then sheets are stamped afterwards or? Uh, they can be uh, stamped, a lot of it's laser cut, comes off of oil. And if you're stamping it, typically it's a, the coil is a specific size and you run it through a machine and it just stamps the part out of the coil. Uh, a lot of it is sheet. They'll take it off a giant coil and make it flat. And then they'll laser cut profiles, parts out of that will get formed and welded and painted farther down the the chain. And so most of the steel you were buying was 
for your own factories or would you cover as well um, the steel that is going to suppliers? Actually, both. A lot of it went you know, right into factories, but I also covered steel that would go into suppliers so that uh, you could ensure that that supply chain, you can ensure material availability, those type of things, and, and pricing to a point too, so that you know your raw material going into your fabricated part, you, you have control over that. And uh, yeah, by the way, how do you source um, those those products? Like how do you find uh, suppliers and how do you negotiate? So finding suppliers in the, the steel market is maybe a little easier than uh, like metal fab components because it's more concentrated. Um, the large suppliers, like you, you can look at a map and see where they're at. You know, steel mills, there's only so many of them. It's huge capital investment. So it's not like there's... 200 of them like there is a metal metal fabric and you kind of start with with location i would say so it's obviously a heavy product and you don't want to be shipping it all the way across the country so you kind of look location i'm here where's the closest mill that's usually where people uh, start and then the processor that uh, converts a coil to a sheet for you and then you just build out from there uh, it's a lot of relationship building, phone calls, uh, some lunches. Uh, it's the the steel industry is really small, in my opinion, for the amount of dollars that run through it. Mm -hmm. So everybody knows everybody. A lot of people will jump from one company to another, and yeah. it, it's it, it's all kind of commingled. Mm -hmm. and, so the relationship is really important. Uh, once you burn a couple people in that industry, it gets around and it's almost impossible to get done what you want to get done after that. So uh, I always I always said it's important to have a high say-do ratio. You just, even if it's bad news, if you you lay it out there and let people know, hey, this is what I'm trying to do, they'll, they'll respect that. And that's the best way, I think, to build your supply base out it, it all starts with those relationships. So that's why you were so so successful because right off the bat, you were an engineer with a high EQ, right? Yeah, so I, that definitely helps, I think. So you have selected suppliers that you source depending on global agreements you have with them or the location. Uh, and then talking about pricing, how does it work? Do you have priceless indexes? Um, yeah, so there's... Uh, kind of a combination. Um, steel is usually priced with a base metal and then some extras. So if you're buying one grade, maybe there's there's no extra for that grade or that uh, width and gauge combination. But as you change the all those parameters, then they pile on different extras, uh, and that's that's kind of the the whole breakdown of it. And that base piece usually follows some sort of index or some sort of, of contract agreement that will say that base piece of it will move up and down based off of, you know, whatever your mechanism is tied to. All the other uh, price verticals, they're usually fixed, but they're different from mill to mill and they're different depending on gauge, grade, and width combinations. So that all goes into the sourcing. There's the base metal that you're negotiating on, and then you have to really look at all these other extras that go into it because they all build up uh, for, for your total price. Um, I would say depending on what your company strategy is, what you're trying to do. There's different contractual mechanisms that, that you can use. 
So there's, you know, there's fixed, you can follow the market, uh, there's scrap contracts, which is tied more to the input of, of the steel mill, as opposed to the price of the finished steel coming out. There's different times uh, and different things to, to use there. For instance, if you're a super high volume uh, manufacturer like auto, they have all those cars that they produce and their margins are kind of thin. So they have to know how much is this car going to cost all year. They can't take a 50% increase in their material because they can't pass that along. Mm-hmm. That's how you go bankrupt. So their, strat- <laughs> their strategies are tied towards, hey, I need this price fixed. It might not be the best price I'm ever going to get this year, but I know what it is and I can set the price of my car and I know I'm not going to lose money on every car that I sell. Other people have uh, larger profit margins and they want to buy steel cheaper. They don't want it fixed. They'll look at the market and say, well, it looks like the market's going to come down. I'm going to follow the market. I'm going to try to follow that down. And if they're wrong, they're not going to go bankrupt because they have the margins to absorb some of that. So there's you know different mechanisms for for different uh, goals of what you're trying to accomplish with your company. Okay. And so um, in the case of uh, the type of products you were buying, how regularly were you renegotiating? And if you were not renegotiating, how did you then index the the prices? Yeah, sure. So it's, um, there's a spectrum. Uh, some of it depends on what is your strategy and some of it depends on how good is the relationship. Some of them were you know, annual. Some of them were two years. Uh, I even signed as big as a three-year agreement with somebody. So you got that set out. And that's it's really nice from a procurement standpoint because you don't have to mess with it for three years. You know, you just, you just let it roll. Um, the longer your agreement is, the more kind of flexibility that you have to have, though. So you would never be able to, for instance, fix a price for three years. Yeah. Nobody, nobody's going to sign up for that on, on either side. Those long agreements it has to be some sort of, of indexed agreement. So you're kind of following the market with, with some sort of regularity. Um, that's, a, that's a big thing. But typically, I think a lot of people will do an annual contract and then reevaluate it depending on two things. What are they trying to accomplish and where do they think the market's going to go from year to year? It's, it's different. Um, several years ago, there was big trade cases in steel and you could kind of see hey, price of steel is going to go straight up. So might not want to follow the market in that instance. Um, right now it's at near record highs. Might want to follow that back down. Uh, at some point that's going to come back down as it comes into contract time and you've kind of uh, went over the peak. You might want a contract that, that follows it all the way down. So it really depends on what you're trying to do and where you think the market's going. Still prices are record high right now. Uh, why is that? Uh, there's a couple different drivers. Um, the, the demand people assume because we've had all these lockdowns and shutdowns that the demand for metal is low because everybody's staying home. Right. But that's not really the case is what's happened is a lot of the demand has shifted from what people were buying to what they are buying now. Uh, for instance, if you're making campers or outdoor equipment or boats, things like that, things that people can buy right now and kind of escape their house off the charts. Uh, Pools is another one. They can't get enough material to make all their products. So the demand has really 
uh, shifted. You have people that maybe would have spent money on travel or vacation and they're locked in their houses now. So they want to buy something. What can I use right now? Yeah. Uh, home remodels. If you look at appliances, for instance, a lot of people are buying new appliances. Uh, your kids opened that refrigerator 18,000 times today, uh, whereas before they were in school. So now your refrigerator's broke. Now you need a new refrigerator. Uh, a lot of those uh, market conditions are, are present now that people didn't think. So the demand isn't as soft as uh, you would intuitively think. And then the other side is the supply side. As things kind of started to come down and everything truly did stop, these steel mills turned off a lot of their capacity. Uh, and now that the demand has come back on fairly sharp for quite a while now, they just didn't turn the capacity back on. Mm-hmm. Said, hey, we're going to leave that all off. We're going to uh, uh, shrink the, the amount of supply and raise the price up. And usually it's what happens is there's enough, uh, there's enough of them that get greedy and turn some supply back on because they want to make that, that super high margin on the steel. And then as one does it, another does it, pretty soon they flood the market with steel, mm-hmm. but that hasn't happened. hasn't happened at all. So uh, it's really kept the prices high. There's been some consolidation in the market also. So some steel mills have bought other steel mills, which has kind of helped keep everybody together from you know, flooding the market with, with new steel. And they've been able to, to hold it and keep it up. Yeah. yeah, very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. And um, how, like, um, I'd like to ask you, how do you get references? Like, how do you get the indexes? And how do you get all those uh, market insights? Sure. So there's uh, there's a lot of different publications out there. Um, I, I currently work for Metal Miner, and we provide those those market insights. But there's better known and larger ones. CRU and AMM are probably the two most recognized and most used indexes out there. And then there's you know, Platts is out there also, and they're pretty easy to find. You, do a, a quick search and you can get an 800 number to call all those guys. Mm-hmm. So the, the information is pretty readily available. That's one thing about the steel market is it's fairly transparent. Uh, the numbers are out there. You can call anybody that's in the steel market and say, what's the, what's the price of steel today? And he knows it like off the top of his head because that information is so uh, readily available. Everybody does their own brand of of forecasting and analysis on what they think drives the market. Um, at, at Metal Miner, we do a little more of a technical analysis, looking at uh, trends, volume in the futures market, actual volatility, and, and we predict trends, not so much an actual price. A lot of the other guys try to say, well, I think steel is going to be $1,232 a ton next week. They're wrong 100% of the time because you can't do that. So we don't, you know, we don't even, we don't even try. We try to do, you know, what is the, what is the market trend going to do? And based off of that, what, what should you do with it? So they're, they're all out there. Let's say that there is a product using a specific grade and you as a commodity manager, uh, you've negotiated a number agreement with a company for this grade. And is it that you have, for example, a formula to calculate the the cost with potentially a floating range um, around the index to say, hey, the 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 price is going to be flat unless it goes up two three percent above or below 
the the grid index. And um, my my follow up question is: How do you negotiate the prices? Is it like FOB, DDP? Because the transport, uh, I guess, is quite high as well. Like the cost of transport. Transport. That's uh, very. And- Uh, so there's you got a couple parts there. I, I can hit all of those. Yeah. Basically, any mechanism you can dream up, you can almost get in a contract. It's okay. Yeah. It's that was my favorite part about about steel. When I first came in, it was very rigid. This is what we do. You have this base price, and then you have some dollar discount off of it. And the goal every year is to get that dollar discount up. It was $20 discount last year. I really need $25. I really need $30. Oh, that's exhausting. There's no creativity in that. And it's super boring. Yeah. And they get tired of it. You know, like they don't want to give you another five bucks every year. Mm. So by the time I left, I had totally different stuff. I had some uh, caps and collars like you talked about where, okay, I don't want to change these prices every three months because it's a waste of time. So if it fluctuates in between a band, just like you said, My price stays flat. If it goes up, maybe I take dollar for dollar. If it goes up, maybe we share in the price. Some of those are out there. So it goes up a buck and I'll take 50 cents and the same on the bottom. Those are out there. Um, I did a scrap contract one time. So there's an index for scrap, which is a large component of making the steel at certain mills. I, I tied my price to that. So it was the same, same bands that you were talking about. If scrap goes above the band, then I'm going to take a, a dollar increase or, or a dollar decrease. Is what I found on scrap is it was much more stable to begin with. So it didn't have these huge spikes that that finished prices have. So it kept it super flat. Uh, that was great because that was in the in the time when the tariffs came in and finished steel went through the roof. Yeah, mine stayed relatively flat. So that's you know you have yeah. all those all those different um, mechanisms and the steel mills are open to listen to almost all of them as long as they're what they think is fair. You know they'll run their analysis on their end and think this is what we think we're going to sell it for based on that and. And they're really open uh, to, to a lot of that. And then, I'm sorry, you had a second part of that question. Yeah, about uh, the cost of transport and uh, if there are as well MOQs, minimum order quantities? Uh, yes, so, so there is. So to get it from a mill, uh, they're making 20-ton coils. And they're not going to sell you less than that because that's what it comes out the mill as. If you need something less than that, it'll go to a processor and they'll take that coil and and essentially break bulk. They'll cut it into pieces for you. Maybe they'll sell you a quarter of that coil if that's all you need. But if you take less than that coil, they're charging for that. They essentially want to put that coil up and they want to run the whole 20 tons out to whatever you need it. And that's where you get your best price. And then on the freight side, You pay for a full truckload. If you put one sheet on there or you fill the whole truck up, you're paying the same freight rate. So um, you really need your your orders to... Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be the same material. You just want to fill the weight up on the truck, right? Uh, so there's that. And then breaking your freight component out separate is is really valuable too. You don't want it all lumped in to one number so you can't see what it is. If you have your freight broken out separate, then you can negotiate with different carriers. You can kind of shop those freight lanes and and kind of keep that in check. Sometimes freight goes crazy. And if you have it all lumped in together, you can't tell what's going up and what's not. What, What should go down 
that's the piece that a lot of people miss is the downslide. Most of the time, your supplier is not knocking on your door saying, hey, uh, steel's down 20%, freight's down 10%. Here's your cost reduction. You usually got to ask for it. If you're not paying attention, then you don't get it. Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of the um, the freight and the the min order quantities, that type of stuff. It's all based around weight. Okay. And so I guess you were... Um negotiating those contracts and then you had local buyers uh, managing the relationship with um, the suppliers or so I kind of managed it at an enterprise level at the at the higher level so mm-hmm. with the steel mills and then when the steel mills shipped that those coils to a processor where they cut it into sheets I managed that also from from that end but then there was another side where they shipped it from the processor to the factories those are usually managed by individual factories because they know their needs right? they know i need two bundles of this and three bundles of this and don't ever send me this material ever again so that's that's typically managed at a, at a factory level and and uh, how did you uh, analyze the cost because we were talking about indexes and bends um, fluctuation bends so did you have spreadsheets powerhouses or did you have software to uh, to help you with that because it must be very complicated well, I think I think you have a little ex- experience in this lane uh, I had massive spreadsheets. Uh, everything was run on uh, Excel 0, uh and that's just kind of uh, how it all went. And I would dump it in different formulas and different charts and all on yeah. spreadsheet. Can you tell us about like your biggest um, success or negotiation that you did particularly well or you're proud of? Yeah, sure. Um, kind of back to to where I started with that, it was really based on, on relationships again. Uh, I I negotiated a long-term deal. It was, uh, I believe that was a, a, it was at least two years, if not three years. It's a little, little fuzzy now, but it was one of those creative deals. So we're following the indexes and following the indexes. And I was like, ah, oh, this is not, this really isn't working for anybody. Um, and then instead I tied it to a scrap contract, sort of like what I alluded to before. And uh, as the price of steel went through the roof, mine didn't. And it worked really good for for everybody because the the scrap was the input cost for the mill, so they were still making money no matter what. the The negotiation was uh, essentially a scrap plus a number, so they knew every pound of steel they sold me there was a fixed margin. It was yeah. they were all going to make money, yeah. Uh, which is not always the case with a steel mill. If the market tanks, um, sometimes they're selling steel at a loss. So they had a margin locked in. And then on my end, it was much flatter. So it took a lot of that that volatility out, which made kind of forecasting how much are, are we going to spend on steel this year and, and what is the overall profitability of the company. Some of those equations got a lot easier as the price of steel was was much flatter. And it was, uh, it was really good for everybody. Yeah. Um, Price, the volatility, forecasting it made all those things uh, much better. And in your role, were you involved in uh, resolving quality issues or um, things in that nature? Yeah. So quality in steel is the worst issue. Um, I tried to pawn those off whenever possible because there's there's no answer to them. Um, in in steel is what you get a lot of times is. The user will say, I need it to look like this, whatever that is. I can't have uh, these pits or these roll marks or any of that. 
but you can't buy steel under that standard a lot of times, uh, especially in thicker gauge material because of the way steel is made, you're inherently going to have some of these defects. So you're asking for steel that the mill can make most of the time, but sometimes they can't and they won't guarantee it. So then when you get that, you're like, hey, I can't use this. And they're like, yeah, we never told you you were going to get exactly that. Mm. But then it's this this back and forth and back and forth. And you you try to set up something that works like, hey, can you take this back and give me credit for it this time? And I won't call you next time or something something like that. And again, it's it's relationship again. When you have a good relationship with them, they'll work with you a lot more. They're willing to take some back and eat some of it. I've had guys that say, don't call me about that. It's yours. Have it. (laughs) That's, and there's, and there's no recourse for it either. So quality issues are tough. The toughest. Yeah. Were you traveling a lot when you had this position? Uh, No, I really didn't travel that much. So I live in the Midwest and uh, most of the mills are in the Midwest. There's some in the Southeast too, that I, I would go to from time to time. And then I was good for one or two international trips a year. Mm -hmm. uh, That was about it. Um, A lot of stuff's done email and phone calls, not as much as what's done now, obviously. But um, after you meet people a few times, then I felt comfortable with more of the electronic communication further the the relationship are there some special events in that industry like trade shows that you would not miss yeah uh, every year there's a big steel conference in atlanta that pretty much everybody that's sourcing large blocks of metal go to you get steel mills and users and oems and all that to go there's a couple of them Mm -hmm. that's what i really like about uh you know sourcing and procurement it's what you're describing is the creativity that you can, you know, use and and enjoy uh, the analytics part of it, you know, because then you're in within numbers and you're looking for the truth and transparency and uh, and you have the relationships and the traveling. Uh, it's the best job. <laughs> it, it, it's good. Uh, the only thing better is marketing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or <laughs> entrepreneurship as well. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. I would agree with all of that. Um, it was super interesting. Thank you so much for uh, sharing all of that um, with us. Uh, do you have some parting words, uh, maybe for people who are interested in in um, getting into that career? Or uh, I, I would say uh, if you enjoy talking to people and being creative and still have that piece of you that likes to analyze data, it's a really good fit. Because uh, you you need the analytics in order to to make the negotiations, and you need the relationship people to execute whatever you've decided is the best way to go on the analytics. And a lot of times, you have to get out of that that lane of what oh, this is what we've done for the last twenty years, and that's where you make the the step function improvements is something different. Um, a lot of these old practices in old ways have been around for decades and they've squeezed everything out of those. So you got to do something else to, to make those improvements. I would say those are probably the, the three attributes of a good procurement person, I would say. And uh, can you tell us uh, a little bit what's your current role? Sure. My, my current role is at Metal Miner, like I said. Um, so I'm the vice president of business solutions. I work with new product development in new customer acquisition. It's, it's kind of funny because I'm trying to sell it to people that used to be in my role. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it's also good because I can kind of look at the information and products that we provide and be like, yeah, that's really useful or, oh, nobody's using that. Get rid of that. Um, so that's kind of what, what I'm doing now at, at Metal Miner. And we really try to provide not just the data, but some personal support. And so you can call me or the analyst on our team and say, hey, we got this information what does this really mean and what should I do with it? How should I use this information to buy metal better, be more strategic? And you know, somebody will pick up the phone and, and talk to you, which is a little different than some of the other CRUs and AMMs. They try to provide the information and let you figure it out. All right. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank and you. It was yeah, fun. Yeah. I really enjoyed the conversation. And uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you.